This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and in focus. Shirley Chichu attended a residential school. She has survived abuse, racism, and poverty through sheer determination and the will to succeed by pursuing her passions. Shirley Chichu is now a world-renowned filmmaker, actor, writer, producer, theater group creator, and extraordinary visual artist. She also found a powerful voice as the chancellor of the University of Brock from 2015 to 2020. Speaking at a convocation a few years ago, Shirley said this, All my life I have been judged because of the color of my skin, the fact that I was a woman, and because I was indigenous. Never give up. Never say I can't do it. Dr. Shirley Chichu joins us now in conversation. Thank you for being with us, Shirley. Thank you for having me. Can we go back in time? Attending a residential school what was that like? How did that happen? And how did it affect you? Attending residential school, um, well, I was um, taken away from my, my, my parents for maybe uh, eight months of the year and uh, allowed to go home for maybe sometimes six to eight weeks. And going home for the for that short period of time was very confusing to me because um, we we would be away from our siblings because they went to different schools and and uh, when we came home it was almost like we had to get to know each other again and as we got to know each other again we would be taken away again to go back to school so, um, so that was uh, a very hard time for me as a young girl to try to wrap my brain about what was happening. Shirley, how did you survive this? And how did you find your way out of the misery and the, the sadness and the isolation, the loneliness and the just the, the absolute in, intolerant way that you were treated? I I found a way by talking to the moon at night when I would see the moon through my window I would talk to the moon and I was able to create a um, um, a survival energy around me that that I was able to put up when I was afraid or when the, the supervisor or somebody would come near near me I was able to put that up the only time that I really had a hard time with that, with that energy, is when I was sexually abused at the school. It, it was it was so terrifying that I knew that what was coming that I wasn't able to use my energy to save myself. You documented your road to healing in a stage play that you wrote in the early '90s, "Path with No Moccasins." How did that happen? Um, I I was going through healing, and and I and I knew that that the arts were very important, was making a very important role in in my healing, 
And so I thought I am going to write about my 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 experience at the school, but I must not put blame on anybody because if I put blame, people will not listen. And so I wrote this play, and I didn't write it myself. I had another person sitting beside me who wrote for me because I was going through so horrible, you know, memories and and I was crying and I you know was trying to get all this stuff out so the person beside me wrote all my all my what I was saying to during that time and so we um, we uh, edited many times and I didn't fade with my experience at first and then I thought yeah, I called it person cactus rose and then I thought to myself before I made my first performance on it, I thought, what am I doing? I'm hiding behind Cactus Rose. No, I can't do that. In order for me to heal, in order for people to hear about my experience and maybe open up some other people's hearts in their healing, I have to say, this is my life. This is surely teaching. Hmm. You founded a theater group. Why did you do that? And and how has that changed your life, but also the lives of people who are involved now in the theater group? I discovered that with with, with writing and and the and the arts were very like they were playing a very important role in my in my journey. And I thought I must help others to find that. You know, to find that voice. And that's why I started the theater group. I started off with very young children first. It was called West Bay Children's Theater. And then one day we were asked to be a host of a big festival. And I didn't have enough money to put on a play. And so I applied to Ontario Arts Council. And I had to change my name. I had to have board members. I had to have different, you know, just... Um, this um, mainstream kind of um, thing that is uh, is put on on us to be able to say that we are going to be competent enough to do this. And so I changed the name to the Bajmojik and and opened it up to everybody. Hmm. And I and my my goal has always been to be able to help young people that have been, you know, affected by the residential schools to have a voice. Theater was a good way to have a voice. And I, and, I, and, I, and I cried myself last week and saying to myself, who's giving those 215 kids voices? What are their voices? You know, and that was another reason why I started these things so that our young people can have a voice. They are our next generation. They are our next leaders. They have to have a voice. And then, of course, the voices that are lost forever, the over 700 uh, mass graves, the the graves that were found in Saskatchewan recently. Shirley, let me ask you this. Uh, The film festival that you founded has already begun. It began on July the 8th. How important is that when it comes to continuing to have your voice, but also allowing for the voices of others to be heard? 
Well, I, I have discovered as a filmmaker that it is very hard for us to get into the mainstream film festivals. And I, and I thought, I, I have to start a film festival where our young people, our filmmakers, our indigenous contents, our indigenous stories, where we can end up, we can go to a place where we can share all this. And, it, and, it's, and it's really important because a lot of films are out there that have not even reached an audience. May I quote you again, Shirley? Speak your truth loud and speak it often, no matter how uncomfortable it may be for you and for the listener. Do you still believe in that, Shirley? Yeah, I guess I, I still do. I mean, we have to work towards reconciliation. You know, my work has always been about reconciliation, to be able to have people come together to tell their, their stories and to be able to share them worldwide. Shirley Chichu, I thank you for your truth and for your voice. Thank you for joining us in conversation. When we come back, Oscar-nominated filmmaker Sammy Kahn. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Canadian filmmaker and passionate advocate for human rights, Sammy Kahn, first hit the mainstream cinematic radar when he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Short Documentary in 2020. St. Louis Superman centers around the struggles of American activist, battle rapper, and former politician Bruce Franks Jr. in the aftermath of the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. As a celebrated documentarian, Khan has a way of finding the right protagonist and then knowing when to get out of the way. So what is next for this compassionate young filmmaker? As our nation struggles to come to terms with the gut-wrenching injustices against humanity, including the recent discovery of mass graves of indigenous children and the shocking murders of three generations of a Muslim family out for a walk on a quiet street in London, Ontario, Sammy Khan will undoubtedly let his camera again be the voice for so many who have been silenced. Sammy Kahn joins us now in conversation. Welcome to the show, Sammy. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. So how does a kid from Sarnia, the son of a Muslim immigrant who is highly respected as a doctor, practicing now for decades, how does he become an Oscar-nominated and Tribeca Award-winning filmmaker? That would be you. That's a great question. If I would have known that um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I could have saved myself a lot of pain and struggle. Um, but I mean, that's the, that's the answer right there is a lot of pain and, su- uh, and struggle. And, uh, you know, a couple of people uh, believing in me and then eventually, you know, sort of finding my voice and finding the right collaborators to, to work with, to elevate um, my work and to, uh, you know, to dive into these big issues, these big ideas that have always excited me. But, you know, sometimes when I was younger, my, you know, filmmaking technique, my storytelling prowess 
didn't quite match the, you know, the ideas, the big ideas that I was grasping for. But then, you know, sort of the last few years, it's, 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 it's worked out. They sort of fit like uh, pieces of a puzzle together. In the introduction, I mentioned that you have this way of finding the right protagonist, and then you actually, Sammy, you know how and when to get out of the way. Was that the case with St. Louis Superman, the documentary that earned you an Oscar nomination when you were dealing with Bruce Franks Jr.? Absolutely. Um, you know, Bruce is just one of these remarkable individuals. He really is a superhero. And uh, so much of the filmmaking practice was just trying to be present and unobtrusive in his life. So it meant living with him, spending a lot of time with him, and just trying to let him do his thing, let him tell his story. Um, and, you know, of course, it's a film, so there are decisions made about what we're going to film and what we're going to put in the edited final version of the film. But we tried to be as... Um, truthful as we could to his experience and to his story. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of why the film resonated, um, you know, so broadly. We never could have predicted it would, uh, you know, take off the way it did. And, you know, it's surreal, you know, embracing Mark Ruffalo, the Hulk on the red carpet of the, um, the Oscars. But that's like just a testament to Bruce and the way his story, um, really resonated with people. Sammy, it seems to me that you see life through a different lens now as a filmmaker. So does that allow you to get closer to who you're filming or what you're filming, or does it give you license to take a step back? Yeah, I think it's it's both. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, being an outsider and not being from sort of like dominant uh, culture, growing up in a place where, you know, I did stick out. It gave me, you know, that process of growing up gave me the ability to um, identify and empathize with a, a broad range of people. You know, my family is like really diverse. My dad's an Indian Muslim. So India is inc an incredibly diverse place religiously and ethnically. And my mom's from uh, the UK. And so could, you know, just by virtue of that diversity in our family meant that, you know, you have to like approach different people um, with different tacts. And uh, if for a filmmaker who works in documentary, that's really important. You have to sort of code switch, you know, like, whether I'm talking to Bruce Franks Jr. or the Cuban baseball players who form the, um, you know, the central characters in my feature documentary, The Last Out. It's like you approach them differently. And, uh, you know, you, it, it gives you feel like being an outsider allows you to kind of, um, you know, adapt um, and shift yourself based on the circumstances of, you know, where you are and who you're talking to. You are passionate about people and about human rights and equality, inclusion, diversity, fairness. May I read a, a, a tweet? This is from last month, June the 7th to be exact, and this is from you. Canadians like to get all smug about multiculturalism and, and how cool and tolerant they are with Americans, but the reality, dot, 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 last week mass graves of dead Indigenous kids gets discovered and this week three generations of a Muslim family get murdered by a white supremacist. Where did that come from and where do you take that energy? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a level of denial that Canadians have been in for a long time about the brutality of the, you know, the last couple hundred years of our history. Um, and I think it, it's partly the perception of Americans who want to sort of see Canada as this, like, some Americans see it as like this uh, bastion of kind of liberal democracy. Um, and certainly that exists in Canada. There are people who believe that, but there's also the, the opposite where, you know, in, you know, the slavery was, uh, you know, the prominent slave owners were, you know, sort of founding fathers of Canadian history, Toronto history, where I am right now, um, you know, and we're starting to learn more about the residential school system, which seems like a, you know, a euphemism for really a genocidal campaign against indigenous peoples. Um, so there needs to be some sort of uh, reconciliation between these twin ideas of Canadian society. And I think Americans have been having this conversation for a long time about race. You know, you can go back to like the 19th century and the abolitionists, but in Canada, that's like a new conversation. And I, you can see that some people are uh, not ready for it, um, but there are a lot of people who feel like the conversation is long overdue. Um, and so, I mean, I think the first thing is let's have the conversation. Like, what are people so afraid of? Um, let's just talk about the role of residential schools in Canada. Let's talk about why um, violent uh, anti-Muslim uh, hate crimes are way more, seem to be way more prevalent in Canada than they do in the United States. Like, that's what people ask me, Americans, British people, my collaborators are asking me, like, why well, that seems to be a uniquely Canadian problem. And I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, but I think sort of pulling the wool um, from our own eyes is like not the best solution. We've got to stop believing the hype. And I think that's something we can look to uh, each other to sort of recommit to this idea of what a kind of liberal uh, multicultural democracy is because we've always, a friend was pointing this out to me the other day, we've always been a, a, a multicultural country, right? Like in the 19th century, indigenous peoples made up a bigger percentage of the population. It's just that there were some elements of society who didn't want to include them in the nation that they were building. So I think we need to recognize that and sort of rededicate ourselves to some idea of equality and um, reconciliation. So I hear your voice loud and clear right now, literally. What about your other voice? And that is your camera. Where is it going to be pointed next? Yeah, I mean, so I, it's kind of crazy. I think that, you know, I worked so hard for, uh, you know, so long to just get people to give me a green light to pay attention to me. And I was counting the other day. I think I have 15 projects that are in some, you know, phase of development, either in active production um, or uh, are in post-production or in early development. Uh, but really, you know, I'm sort of looking, all what unites my work is looking for those superheroes in everyday life. Like I'm working on a, uh, a Verite documentary here in Toronto about this remarkable um, Muslim physician who's like urgently fighting this mental health crisis in immigrant communities and across the GTA that has 
been precipitated by COVID. Now, because of the events in London, that work is even more urgent. So, you know, she's like a great example of the sort of the, the charismatic characters that I gravitate towards. And I don't like to be, um, uh, you know, too didactic or like preachy with my filmmaking. I sort of want to come out organically with the characters the way Bruce does. He can sort of naturally, um, you know, get you to understand what he's fighting for and why this is important for him. I'm, it's not, I'm not like a kind of inconvenient truth documentary filmmaker or um, fiction filmmaker. I'm, I'm looking for, to show, to show life and it's all its complexity and also the toll that it, it takes on, um, you know, activists and, you know, community leaders, people trying to affect change. And, you know, this project here in Toronto about this Muslim physician is one of the ones that I'm, I'm most excited about. You've traveled the world in your earlier years as a documentarian. You made a low-budget film in India. You spent time in a Middle Eastern jail on another project. And now what you're seeing is right here in your own front yard, if you will. Does that make a difference that and I don't know whether it's a good difference or it's a sad difference that that all of the complexities and all of the challenges and the injustices are happening right here in Canada. It does. It makes it more frustrating. You know, it it, it, it does make it more frustrating where, you know, I, when it's people you know or who are friends of friends, it's like, why can't you just see me as an equal? <laughs> you know, why can't you just understand why... Um, it's uh, it's cruel to demonize one group of people um, to pursue policies that um, discriminate against one group of people or, you know, coming out of the pandemic um, to not address, to be blind to sort of the, uh, the inequities in healthcare delivery. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, another project I was working on is in the U.S. about uh, a nurse practitioner who actually has, is um, vaccinating homebound people because that's something we take for granted as people who are able-bodied. But there are people who can't leave their homes. And not only that, they don't have access to uh, smartphones or Wi-Fi. There's so much of that we take for granted. But it gets to that sort of that process of building an inclusive democracy. It's like if that's really what we're committed to, we have to like look at all facets of, um, you know, our society to make sure that nobody is getting left behind. And that takes, that takes work, but that's sort of the deal. You know, that's the deal if we're all in this together. Are you in any way ever so slightly offended that people had not really paid attention to you until you had an Oscar nomination last year? Or are you just glad that there is finally a spotlight, not on you in a glamorous way, but in, in a provocative and, and communicative way? Um, you know, I, I always have a chip on my shoulder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I grew up in Sarnia. It's a kind of a tough place to grow up in, and it's, you know, especially if you are like an, an outsider. But even, you know, my friends who are, you know, my white friends also have chips on their shoulders, so they're a little kind of rough and tumble. Um, so, I mean, I think I, even with an Oscar nomination, I feel like people don't take me seriously, but that's also speaks to my own nature where it's like, it's, I don't do it for the awards, you know, I'm like unsatisfied by everything that I'm doing. It's like, we'll never be enough. It's always like, if I reach 
the next island that I'm going for. It's like, okay, what's, what else is out there? I want to keep going. I'm an explorer. I'm an adventurer. And uh, I'm my own worst critic. So let's keep – there's so much work to do. There's so many stories to tell. Um, you know, it's like that sort of idea, you know, from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. It's like that kind of ceaseless exploration, that writing, like, you know, it's going out of style. That's how – I feel it's like there's, I only have, you know, a few more decades on this planet, um, you know, four or five, if I'm lucky, who knows what can happen tomorrow. Um, so I better make the most of it. And, uh, you know, if I get an award, that's great. If I don't, I'm still committed to the work and especially the people that I work with. Um, and that's the most important thing to me. Sammy, how important is your family to you? And I mean your parents. I also mean your own family in everything you do. Yeah, I mean, they're the most important thing. Like, you know, they're for better or worse. <laughs> you know, we're sort of, you, get, you don't get to choose your family. But I'm fortunate where, you know, uh, my parents, you know, they came from very, very modest backgrounds. And again, my dad is like Indian Muslim, which is like, it's hard, especially now, um, but even historically to be a minority and a Muslim in India. And, uh, you know, so that experience of the partition of India and the sort of ethnic cleansing that went on was really key to um, me making sense of the world and, you know, um, becoming wise to the world at a young age. And then my mom grew up in the UK after the war, World War II, which is, you know, kind of poor place, like eating cans of spam and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it did give me an appreciation that there were people out there struggling and my parents sacrificed everything for me and my sisters. Um, and so I feel like, uh, a responsibility to them. Like I feel that I'm sort of that cliched son of immigrants then where it's like the pressure you know, feel that pressure, that expectation to, you know, sort of um, have earned it, you know, to, to constantly be earning it, to, to um, show to my parents and, you know, their parents and their parents that um, their risks, their sacrifices uh, were worth it. Um, and then the, just the important thing, too, is like my immediate family now, like my wife and kids are uh, so important to me and like my wife you know for those years of struggle she she supported me for like you know a couple of years when there was like no income coming in or like very little income coming in and I was like working on this crazy project about you know a group of Cuban baseball players in Central America and she believed in me when hardly anybody else did um so I think that's a circle back to the awards that's like for them, it's like it, it's. I feel good about that because it shows them that their sacrifice has been worth it, and it's something they can show their friends. Right? <laughs> People know what the Academy Awards are. It's like, oh, I get that. I know what Tribeca is. I know what the Academy Awards are. So you know, Rachel wasn't crazy to support Sammy <laughs> those couple of years. She, you know, that that bet has worked out. And uh, but again, it's like never satisfied. It's like on to the next thing. I can't wait to see what comes next from you, Sammy Khan. Courageous, compassionate, committed documentarian. Thank you for joining us in conversation. 
Thank you so much, Ann. It was a great conversation. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.